Jesus' name, amen. So among scholars who study the New Testament, there can be a lot of disagreement. You, you find very little that scholars can agree on. But there, is a, a, there are a number of things that most scholars, those who call themselves Christians, those who don't actually agree on. And one is that Jesus was a real historical person. We talked about that last week. There are very, very few people who deny the reality of Jesus as a true person, living in the first century, teaching. The second thing is that Jesus was crucified. All of the historical evidence points to that, both from the New Testament, but also from extra-biblical sources as well, like Josephus. And then the third thing that people agree on is that people at least claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the, the New Testament was written, uh, many of the books, within a, a decade of the time of the resurrection, um, and all of them within the, the lifetime of people who were eyewitnesses of the event. So these weren't things that were invented as mythology hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, but there was at least the claim at the time that Jesus rose from the dead. Of course, you say, well, then many of these scholars or experts that you see in documentaries on the New Testament don't necessarily believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. And the reason many don't believe that truth uh, is because they say, well, some, it's an illusion that maybe Jesus appeared to die, but he didn't actually die. Or others say it wasn't an illusion, but it was confusion that the women went to the wrong tomb or people thought they saw something, but they actually didn't. And still others would say that it was pure fabrication, that the disciples intentionally misled people claiming that Jesus was alive, claiming that they had see, seen him. But then you say, well, what actually is the evidence? Did Jesus really die on the cross and then rise again on the third day, as we read here in the New Testament? Or was it illusion, confusion, fabrication? And, and that's our outline today, that it wasn't illusion, it wasn't confusion, it wasn't fabrication. And so first, it wasn't illusion. And we learn this from a witness to the events in our text, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, look at verse 50 in your Bible. And you can just keep your Bible open because we're going to be walking through it. In, in verse 50, it says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, that he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And so as you look at these verses, you say, well, what is this? who is this man? What is he about, you could say? And, and we see certain facts about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, that, that he was influential as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish assembly. But it says that he didn't consent to their decision to try and convict Jesus for blasphemy. We don't know whether he just wasn't there. Uh, remember, Jesus was tried in the middle of the night. Perhaps he was still in bed. Perhaps he wasn't invited because they knew that he wouldn't support it. We don't know. But one way or another, he didn't support the action of the assembly. 
And we also know that he was brave, not at first, because in the Gospel of John, we read that he had actually secretly followed Jesus for a while, like his friend Nicodemus, who actually helped him bring Jesus down from the cross, who came to Jesus at night. But Joseph of Arimathea had been afraid to publicly follow Jesus because of the stigma that would bring from the establishment. But here, finally, he's brave in a way that even the disciples weren't, that he goes to Pilate, the governor of Judea, and he asks for the body of Jesus. They had already verified that Jesus was dead, and the Romans were good at telling if people were dead. But usually when somebody was crucified, they would be left on the cross to rot as a sign of uh, what happens to people who oppose the authority of Rome. Or they would just be laid in some sort of an unmarked grave. It was always an ignominious, shameful death that, that you didn't give somebody who was crucified an honorable burial. And so it was brave of Joseph to go to Pilate, ask for the body of Jesus, identifying himself with this supposed rebel, the supposed criminal. But of course, beyond being influential and being brave, we also see that this man was rich. He was wealthy because when he took Jesus down from the cross, he was able to wrap him in a linen shroud. That would have been expensive. And he was also able to lay him in a stone tomb carved out of the stone. And even today we know that burial expenses can be a lot to have a really nice coffin, to have a nice tomb. It's expensive, and it's the same thing that if you had a, a brand new tomb carved out of stone, that that's something that, that most people couldn't afford. But yet this is something that Joseph had and offered for the burial of Jesus. But probably the most important detail that we see here about Joseph is that he was a righteous and godly man, that he was seeking the kingdom of God. And so you put all of this together thinking about his character, and he's what in law would be called a credible witness, that he is, he's a credible individual, one whom you would want to trust. He is trustworthy, worthy of trust. And as I was saying a moment ago, the book of Luke was written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. It was written around 30 years after the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you think about it from our perspective, that's about like 1991. And some of you weren't alive in 1991. Uh, some of you were. But I imagine that if we pooled the collective knowledge of this room, we could get a pretty good sense of what happened in 1991. There are witnesses of 1991 here in this room, and we remember what happened in that year. And it's the same thing with people around 60 AD reflecting around 30 AD. And so for Luke, when he puts names, it's intentional that, that these are things that actually can be verified, where people could go to Arimathea. They could talk to friends and family of Joseph, and if he were still alive, they could talk to Joseph himself. And if you were to, to do that, if you were to go to Joseph of Arimathea, and you were to ask him what he saw in those events, well, he could describe a lot for you. He, he could describe the death of Jesus. And, of course, it's very unlikely that Jesus would have survived crucifixion. We talked a couple weeks ago about the scourging, the beating that he received before. People don't generally survive that kind of treatment. 
Uh, people don't generally survive being nailed to a cross in their hands and their feet. I mean, just think about the, the blood loss from that itself. And then we also read elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus was stabbed in the side with a spear. This is not something that people just recover from quickly, especially after three days. But as we think about Joseph of Arimathea, he could actually describe for you lowering the cross down. He could describe for you pulling the nails out of his hands and feet. He could describe for you the, the temperature of Jesus' body, the lack of heartbeat, the, the, the lack of breath. He could describe likely in detail what he saw and felt and experienced in the body of Jesus. And though Luke himself, who's recording this, was a physician, we don't think that Joseph was a physician, but you don't have to be a medical expert to know that someone is dead. And so that could be the, the testimony of Joseph. He, he could say, yes, he was really dead. I saw it. I experienced. But he could actually testify further and say that even if somehow Jesus was alive, that they, the Romans had missed the signs of his death, that Joseph had missed the signs of his death, he could describe this linen shroud that they wrap around the body of Jesus. And this is a lot of fabric wrapped around him. And so even if Jesus somehow revived in the tomb, a strong person wouldn't be able to get out of this linen shroud, but especially someone who had endured traumatic injury. And so again, Jesus really died. And even if you say, well, maybe he got out of the linen shroud, Joseph of Arimathea could also testify to the, the size of the stone rolled over to the, the mouth of the tomb. This was his tomb, after all, and that one strong, healthy person couldn't move that stone away, and not to mention someone with the injuries that Jesus had sustained. And so from all of this, we see that it wasn't an illusion that Jesus really died and therefore really rose again from the dead. And that's our first point here. But second, it also wasn't confusion. It wasn't illusion. It wasn't confusion. And we see this actually from the women in our text. Look at verse 54. It continues that it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so we talked about Joseph, this first witness, but... What can we say from these verses about this second group of witnesses, these women? Well, it says that they had followed Jesus from Galilee. But we also see their character, that these were godly women. And they cared deeply for the Ten Commandments. So much so that as they thought about the Fourth Commandment, the commandment to rest on the seventh day after six days of work, that they said, we're not going to even anoint the body of Jesus on the Sabbath. We're going to take the law of God so seriously, so they prepared their spices, but they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandments. And so these women weren't fanatics. They're not the kinds of people who would be pulling the wool over the eyes of others. 
like Joseph of Arimathea, these are credible witnesses. These are people who are trustworthy, worthy of trust. And they could testify with confidence that there wasn't confusion about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because look at verse 55. It says that the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And that may seem like just an incidental comment, but I think it's very intentional on Luke's part as he's laying out systematically evidence for the ministry of Jesus that he, he's saying that they, they knew exactly where Jesus was laid. They didn't go to the wrong tomb on the first Easter to find another empty tomb thinking that Jesus had risen from the dead when he actually hadn't. But then as we look still further at the beginning of, of chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 24, verse 1, it says that on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so they testify that the tomb is really empty. And that's also crucial for our understanding of Christianity. That if Jesus had actually appeared to them first, they probably would have thought that it was some sort of a ghost, an apparition, uh, that Jesus was there before them spiritually, but his body was still in the tomb. But because they went into the empty tomb first, saw that it was empty, then when Jesus actually did appear to them in resurrection and glory, they realized this is actually a bodily resurrection, that Jesus has truly been raised from the dead. And that's significant for our understanding of resurrection, that the future for believers isn't to be disembodied, spirits out on a cloud, but the hope for believers is bodily resurrection like Christ's resurrection body. And just to drive this home, the women see something supernatural in the tomb in verse 4. It says that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And you think about that. They're in this tomb, this place of death, and suddenly they're there's something that they can't explain through natural causes in front of them. It would be absolutely terrifying. And that's what it says, that they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And for some of you then, when you read this, you say, all right, now I know that I can dismiss the New Testament because I don't believe in supernatural appearances. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in, in demons. But quite often I think that people operate from a worldview where they automatically reject anything that appears supernatural, any witness to anything supernatural before they even see the evidence, before they even consider whether it could be true. And if we're open to the possibility that something actually happened, that these women actually saw angels in the tomb, then it becomes clear that the resurrection wasn't based on confusion. The tomb was empty. The angels were really there. They really spoke. And we have no reason to doubt the testimony of these women. Again, it wasn't illusion. It wasn't confusion. 
But then third and finally, it wasn't fabrication. And this is what we learn from the, the final set of witnesses here, the, the disciples in verse 9. Well, starting in verse 8, it says that the women remembered Christ's words. And then in verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women. And again, remember I said that names often are, these are the citations. These are the persons you need to talk to if you want to verify what I'm saying. It says that these women went and told the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe it. And so we said, Jesus is really dead. It's not illusion. The women had the right tomb. It's not confusion. But then that really only leaves you with fabrication. And that's been probably the most common explanation of the resurrection uh, report among those who don't believe it. And so some say that maybe the disciples just made it up completely. They're just lying. They invented a story to make their dead leader seem good. But of course, that, that, if that were true, they could have just produced the body of Jesus, the, the officials, to prove, no, look, he's really dead. He didn't rise again. And so you almost have to pair the fact that they somehow went and overcame the Roman soldiers who had been positioned out in front of the tomb, <clears throat> that they then stole the body away, and then lied about seeing Jesus alive, and were somehow able to fake it among others who claimed that they saw Jesus alive as well, that it was this, this great farce, this great lie. But you think about that, and you say, is there actually evidence for that? Because that would be something massive to believe. And what we see here. As, we, as the women are coming to the tomb, and, and if you study the, the time, women were not allowed to testify in courts of law at this, in this society. There's a reputable New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, who writes that in that society, women were not trusted to give evidence. They were thought to be more emotional than men, and especially in religious matters, apt to be credulous, too, too easily swayed by emotion. Celsus, a second-century intellectual despiser of Christianity, dismissed the alleged testimony of Mary Magdalene by calling her, quote, a hysterical female, close quote. Now, that, I, that's wrong. I, I think that that culture was wrong to believe that, obviously. But if you were in the first century and you were trying to fabricate a story to invent a new religion, why would you put women as the first witnesses to what you're claiming. They couldn't testify in court of law. Their testimony would broadly be rejected. And so you take that and you say, that doesn't seem like fabrication. But then also, why would you make yourself look so bad? Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, the, the disciples have looked really bad. They didn't get what Jesus was saying half the time. They fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. They abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. They were fearful. They were hiding. And then finally the women come reporting Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And it says that they didn't believe it. They said it's an idle tale. And this is after Jesus himself had predicted numerous times that he would die and then rise again on the third day. 
And so the disciples look extremely foolish. Would you want to paint yourself in this light if you were making up a story? And then I guess you could say, well, maybe the disciples are just really clever. And they're saying, hey, let's put women as the first witnesses because that would be unexpected. And let's make ourselves look really bad because then no one will think we're lying. And this will definitely fabricate this story. And that would make them probably the, the greatest, most successful con men in all of human history who also offered, authored one of the greatest books on the moral teaching and also in human history. But then you say, well, do con men die for their con? Because every single one of the apostles, with the exception of John, who also suffered immensely, went to death and martyrdom for belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And clearly, people die for lies all of the time. But it's very rare for someone to die for a lie knowing that it's a lie. A lie that you yourself invented. That, that is extremely unlikely. And these men weren't brilliant individuals. These were Judean peasants. These were fishermen. These were largely uneducated people. They were people who lived, were in fear before the resurrection, hiding out. These weren't the type of people who could mount that kind of a conspiracy. And so then what you're left with is that something changed them. Something transformed these men from these terrified losers hiding out, mourning the death of their rabbi, to these bold witnesses willing to go to death and proclaiming good news, loving their enemies, laying down their lives peacefully like lambs to the, to the slaughter. And through their testimony, within 300 years, the entire known world was transformed. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India. The gospel went to Ethiopia. The gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean world into Europe. And within 300 years, the Roman Empire itself, so committed for thousands of years to paganism, changed its national religion to Christianity. So what happened? What changed so many lives? What changed so many societies? And it wasn't illusion. It wasn't confusion. It wasn't fabrication. That It was because Jesus really died and really came back to life again. Now, as we wrap up today, then, we, we see that Jesus doesn't actually appear in our text today. You'll have to come back next week for the resurrection appearances uh, in the next section of Luke. But let's look just at our final verse here in verse 12. It says, but Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And that should be our response as well, that, that we leave here marveling at what we have seen and what we have heard, that we marvel that the tomb was empty. We marvel that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, that changes absolutely everything. It means that death isn't the, the last word. It means that there is hope. It means that this this life isn't all there is. It means that through faith in Jesus, we can share in resurrection bodies like Christ's resurrection bodies. 
But tragically, I fear that some could actually leave here not marveling, but still doubting. Because you can always poke holes in, in evidence. You, you, talk, you think about all the things that we've seen in the book of Luke, all the evidence for the resurrection, and you can think of ways around everything that I've said. You can think of reasons to be skeptical, reasons to be cynical. But my prayer ultimately for all of us is that we can be born again. Because it's Peter who went into the tomb and saw that it was empty who later wrote this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, yes, there is evidence, but it's, but it's even deeper than that because it's not just that a man was alive, dead, and then alive again 2,000 years ago, but it's about that man being the son of God, fully God and fully man in one person, taking the wrath of God on himself in our place, rising again from the dead, offering hope and grace and salvation for anyone who repents and, and trusts in him, promising that we can have life. And so for so many, it's been a difficult year. I mean, for many of you, it's been a difficult year. Maybe you're still afraid. You're, you're still feeling hopeless. You're, you're still wondering if you can keep going. And that's where then we say this is not facts, but this is the call to repent, to trust, to experience this living hope open wide through the resurrection of Jesus that really took place and in space and time. And it's ultimately that hope that we see symbolized and sealed in this meal today, uh, that Jesus his body was broken, his, his blood was shed. We see a symbol of the, of the cross here in this meal. But we also see the, the hope, the resurrection life, the, the promise that opened up on the resurrection. That what we experience when we take the Lord's Supper together is a, a meal of celebration, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That it, that's hope that wouldn't be possible if the body of Jesus we're still in the tomb. But the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And so when we celebrate this, we don't believe that he is physically, bodily present with us here, that he is in heaven, but we know that he's coming again bodily, the resurrected Lord, to judge the living and the dead. Now, if you're here and you're still skeptical about the resurrection, uh, we're thankful you're here. We always want this to be a place for people at, at different stops along their spiritual journey but we'd encourage you to wait and not take this meal if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you if you're not, haven't repented and trusted in him alone for salvation. And, and as we always say, the, the purpose is not to exclude you, but rather to keep you from hypocrisy, of going through the motions of something you don't believe. And you can watch this and ask the questions about the evidence. Consider the hope that this represents and question whether this hope could actually be yours today through Jesus. And we also ask if you're here and you've never made your faith public by uh, being a member of a church that preaches the gospel, that you also wait. We can talk about what it looks like to be public with your faith and to celebrate this, this meal together. We also ask that small children wait, and, and, and for the same reason that, that they've made a profession of faith, that we celebrate them taking this uh, together, that they understand what is going on in this meal. 
Uh, but for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church, but one who's repented, who's trusting in Jesus, and one who can profess what we see in the Apostles' Creed on page 6. And so let's take a moment and profess the faith that we hold together as we come to this meal. Please read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we take this together. You can come forward in no particular order. Come when you're ready. And still be mindful of physical distancing as you come forward to get your cup. Bring it back to your chair. And um, we'll wait, and then we'll take it together. We can briefly take our masks down. There's a, you open the top here. You can get the bread. Then open the next tab. You can get the juice. Uh, there's a trash can in the back and hand sanitizer there. You can throw away your cup um, after the service. And if you need gluten-free, it's in these here. So you can grab one of, one of those. Let's pray together.